Welcome everyone to episode 117 of the show. If you find any value in the podcast, please give us a review, a follow, a share. We are trying to grow this podcast and you wouldn't believe how much it helps us if you smash the five stars. We get ranked, we get noticed, discovered, we grow organically and that motivates us to keep producing high quality content. For any news and announcements, visit cupofnurses.com and or we are warriors.com. Today, we'd like to welcome Tasha Triana. This is Tasha's second time returning to the show. Previously, she was on episode 56. Tasha is a Southern California native, a world traveler of 25 plus countries, registered nurse of eight plus years, certified yoga and meditation teacher, and a Reiki practitioner. Tasha founded her business, The Nurture Nurse, to teach nurses how to prioritize their own self-care and wellness so they can show feeling replenished and empowered to live their best lives. Let's start the show. So, so Tasha, you got your master's in psychology. How did you transition into that? What sparked your interest into psychology? Yeah, I actually started in psychology before nursing. So I have just always been really interested in the human mind, behavior, relationships, that kind of thing. And so Actually, when I went into college, I went to school here up north at UC Santa Cruz, and I went in as a speech pathology idea. That's what I thought. And then I took this one class and I was like, I'm out of here. No, thanks. It was just really too much like mind stuff versus, you know, relationships and that type of thing. So I went in and I really loved it. When I first took my intro to psych class, I was like, yes, this is it. And then I ended up pursuing my master's. And as I was in my master's, it was at that time that I started getting really interested in travel. I did some field study work in Costa Rica, working in like group homes, orphanages, and I saw Doctors Without Borders there. And I thought, hmm, maybe I should switch to nursing instead of like keep going with a PhD because then I could pair mind and body. I could live anywhere in the world. I could also travel. I could do volunteer work. And so that's what shifted me from psych to nursing. It's a it's a really good shift because it's still almost encompassing the the same things you wanted to do. Is there like one major thing that you've learned from getting your degree in, degree in psychology that you transfer into nursing? Oh my gosh, I think so much. I think, I think nursing too. I think psych and nursing are both really amazing things that you can pivot or just use in so many different ways. But I think just understanding you know, that we all come from different backgrounds, that we all respond and react in different ways. We interpret things in different ways. And I think that really helps just with patient interaction because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all humans. And so we can just as easily as nurses be triggered by our patients or vice versa. And so just having that deeper level of understanding of, you know, the human mind and yeah, just the experiences we come from really shape us. I think that has allowed me just a lot of open-mindedness and the ability to connect with my patients on a deeper level too. And I'm pretty sure once you notice that, you know, that the patient trusts you a lot more and I'm sure they verbally tell you that because it's almost like Mm -hmm. a connection that you're building when you actually have time to be present with your patient. And I think, Oh my gosh, totally. We talked a little bit prior to the show. So you're thinking about leaving bedside or you finally made the switch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I made the switch one week ago. This is my first week that's completely free of bedside in over eight years. So I'm still fully processing it all. You know, it hasn't totally sunk in. But yeah, it, um, it, it's been coming, you know, it's been a gradual 
thing that I know was coming and now the moment is here. So I'm really excited for this shift, even though it's a big one, I'm excited. So what made you leave bedside? Or first of all, what kind of bedside nursing did you do? What unit, what made you leave it? And what are you trying to do now? Yeah, yeah, thanks for the questions. So uh, I've been in women's health and I was working postpartum actually all of my career. There was a point when I wanted to switch to labor and delivery Uh, But just the timing and the hospital I was at didn't allow for inter, you know, department training. And so I stuck with postpartum. And through that, I was able to do per diem. I was able to move from Southern California to Northern California. And I've always loved just working with children, working with families. And so being able to work with that family unit, again, with the psychology piece, I think that really plays a part into that as well. Um, But as I was, you know, on my path of nursing, I think I always knew in some way before I became a bedside nurse that it would kind of be a jumping point for me that I wouldn't necessarily spend the entire nursing career in the hospital. Like I knew I would use my nursing degree in a different way. Um, But the hospital experience I've had, you know, like I said, over eight years has just taught me so much. And through that, through the experience of nursing, I also became burnt out, which I don't know if you guys can relate to it at all or have experienced that or been on the cusp of it, but I definitely experienced burnout. And so through that, it really allowed me to just take a look at my life, the things that I was doing, what was and wasn't serving me. And through that, I really began my self-care journey, which allowed me to you know, start replenishing myself. I always have loved taking care of people. And I think that most nurses, you know, love doing that. That's why we're in the profession. And I think that it's such a blessing, but if it's something that is not in balance, it can easily, you know, tip us over to the side of getting burnt out. So through that, I really became into mindfulness, into meditation, into yoga, just slowing down nature, all these things that started refueling me. And through that, I organically developed my business, The Nurtured Nurse, which is now something that I'll be devoting 100% of my energy to, which is something I grew, you know, while I was working in the hospital. I love how you mentioned that you naturally developed it because you say that you have a love for passion of helping people and nursing is just one of those careers that allows you to do that. And I love your story because it's not the end all be all. You could you could juggle nursing. You could go into different avenues. Let's say, just like you mentioned, while you were nursing, you worked on a nurture nurse, and here you are. You're still passionate about the same thing. You're just doing it in a different part of your life in a different way. Yeah. So, what is the nurture nurse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for asking. I love what you said too. I think you know people have really been asking me this last week as I've stepped away from bedside. You know, what are you doing, and why did you switch? And I think. It's exactly like you said, I'm still helping people. It's just kind of in a new lens or in a different way. I think my time at the hospital, while I've learned so much from my patients, my coworkers, just the experience in general, I'm here to serve or to give back in a different way now. Um, so yeah, I think it's all interrelated. What was the last part of your question? I think I, oh, what is the nurtured nurse? Yes. Yeah, the nurtured nurse basically is my way of well, how would I say it? I, I teach classes. I do private coaching one-on-one. I think that's my favorite piece is the one-on-one coaching. So I really help nurses learn how to prioritize themselves, how to make time for themselves so that they can create their own self-care routines and practices that really replenish them, that nourish them, and that allow them to show up you know, as their best selves, whatever that is for them, because we, we each have our own definition or what our best self looks like for us. I'm really glad that you started Nature Nurse. I think you give a lot of a lot of hope 
a lot of promise to future nurses that are also using nursing in a similar fashion that we use nursing. And that's, like you said, a jumping point. And like Matt said before, lots of people that go to nursing, nursing is their end all be all. That's basically what they think they're going to do the rest of their life. But it actually makes me happy. I'm sure it makes Matt happy. And just like everybody else, seeing a nurse actually leave the bedside and start start applying their time and effort into actual passion. Like Kat Golden did it. Like look how amazing she's doing. You're you're doing it. So just because you become a nurse and you enjoy helping people, it doesn't mean you have to stay in there forever. Yeah, you don't have to love medicine, yeah. but you yeah. love helping people. Exactly. So we all have that same thing in common where we all enjoy helping people. And just because you want to leave bedside, it doesn't mean that you're taking a loss and you're not helping people. Helping people. You can help people in a numerous amount of ways. And like you said, nursing can just be a jumping block or a starting point for you to do that. So with the Nurture Nurse, you do a lot of wellness, holistic care, a lot of meditation. So how has over the years, or even how have you, you gotten into meditation and how has meditation changed your life and how do you practice meditation? Yeah, thanks for, for this question. I feel like it's a deep one, a big one. Uh, and I love what you said too, just reiterating on the jumping point. And I think that, you know, like you guys both said, it, there's still the common piece of helping people and nurses can help in different ways. And I think what's the most powerful is when we can align like our true passion and purpose with that core value. So it seems like nurses, you know, we all love helping people. That's really a core value for us, maybe helping service, giving back. However, you know, you guys are also helping, of course, inside the hospital, but also your podcast by expanding people's minds, by letting them hear other people's experiences to know that, you know, there is other options out there besides bedside nursing. Not that there's anything wrong with people who want to stay at the bedside, you know, their whole lives. I think we're all different. And that's what's the amazing piece is just exploring what really lights our own inner fire. And that spark is what allows us to be passionate and give back in a more powerful way. Um, but in terms of meditation, yeah, I really became interested in meditation. Gosh, it's been quite a while. I've had a couple of friends who have really been on the mindfulness path for quite some time. And I'd always been kind of curious. And I think really it just started coming out again, naturally at that time I was feeling really burnt out. I, in the morning would just start noticing, you know, Hey, I think I need to spend a little extra time in the morning before going to work or before starting my day, because I felt I would just hit the ground running and everything was just kind of in go mode and more of like that reaction mode of, okay, I need to message this person. I need to do this, just kind of putting out my energy in those ways. And I used to be the person that would wake up, my alarm would go off. I would check my email, the weather, the news, like every single thing I could check on my phone. And I realized, you know, I don't think this is really serving me. So it started very simply, literally just waking up five minutes earlier and just lying in my bed kind of in silence and just kind of reflecting. And then eventually I started, you know, reading about meditation. I started practicing. I started um, doing guided meditations and, and things like that. And that actually was part of me moving to San Francisco a little over three years ago was because I knew the Bay Area had so much to offer in terms of wellness, meditation, yoga. And that's when I was really becoming interested in it. So I moved here. I switched uh, hospitals that I was working for. I was work working for Kaiser. So I was able to pivot and move up to the Bay, which was really nice. And a huge benefit to nursing is that you can live anywhere and, and move, which I'm so grateful for. 
So then I started coming to a meditation studio here in San Francisco and attending group classes and just meeting other like-minded people, which was really nice as well because they all had different experiences and I could learn from them and I could talk to the teachers in person. And then the studio offered a training. So I took that and then a class space opened up and the, the owner of the studio asked me if I'd like to teach. And at first I was like, oh, okay, you know, I think I should do this. I'm kind of scared. It's a new area for me, even though I'm super interested in it. And I was like, you know, the best way to do it is you just, you just got to go. And so I did it. And now I've been teaching for about, um, I guess, gosh, like two and a half years or a little over two years. And yeah, I love it. So now I have my own practice that I do every morning, sometimes in the evening or afternoon as well. But every morning, it's part of my morning self care. And I teach a couple times a week as well. So it's a big part of my life. So meditation is something you begin early in your day, correct? Within the first five minutes, you're saying? Yep. Yep. Okay. One of the first things I do. And I, I noticed that how it affects your life when you don't do it. Because for example, sometimes you wake up. And if you have a lot to do that day, sometimes your body gets anxious. It's very weird. You almost feel short of breath in your own Damn, overwhelmed. you feel overwhelmed and you, this flood of emotion is coming and on my on my ceiling there's like this quote in this house that we're living in it says what are the five things you're grateful for and i love that because mm -hmm. i always mm -hmm. i always like kind of like go um like third person in my body i'm just like okay hey let me just ground myself so what do you think is the purpose of meditation because there's a lot of different viewpoints some people think it's literally like emptying the mind what is, in your definition, the purpose of it? Yeah, good question. And I think for me, meditation is, I think for me, it's like that time of reflection. I think meditation can look many different ways. For me, I used to be a runner. I used to run so much marathons. And for me, that was a meditation too, because it allowed me to just drop into my body. I could get really good ideas. I wasn't really thinking, you know, with all of these millions of thoughts coming through, um, but now for me, it's really taking the time to just be still, it can be emptying the mind in some ways, but for me, more than anything, it's the awareness. And so no matter what our mind's job is to have thoughts, we have over 50,000 thoughts a day, you know, just constantly streaming through and that's the job of our mind. But as we build awareness, we realize we don't have to give attention to each of those thoughts. You know, we can just let it pass through. We don't have to give energy to everything. And so the more you start practice, it's kind of like what you said, that third person, we're not our thoughts and we're not our feelings, but we're the awareness that's above them. That's able to observe them. And so by taking this time to be still, to reflect, to gain this awareness, we're able to then start separating and to notice maybe old patterns, behaviors, certain things that we want to start to change, you know, in our lives, because we can't make a change unless we have the awareness that something is or isn't occurring. Make it, yeah. So it's like making the unconscious conscious in a way. And I was reading something mm -hmm. um, recently. Sometimes what you have to do is just literally just sitting with that emotion or that feeling and not doing anything. And that's so beneficial mm -hmm. because there's like this saying that says in order to go through your trauma or your pain, you have to go literally through it, like in it. So just what what I've what I've learned from meditation is just sitting with that feeling, correct? And just let it just warm your heart up till you kind of let it go. You make peace with it in a way. Is that like correct? Yeah, I think you hit on a lot of actually really important points in what you just said. I think 
you know, so much of what we do in the outside world can be viewed as numbing, distraction, soothing, where we might have these feelings that are uncomfortable or we don't know what to do with. And so we block them out in some way. So meditation, again, is is an opportunity to allow you to just be, you know, to sit with these feelings that come up. And again, we don't have to identify ourselves as that feeling. It's just a part of our experience. And so the more we're able to let it come up and out, the better off we are because anything we keep pushing down in some way, it's going to find its way out of us, you know, whether that's a positive expression or, you know, a negative expression. And I think what you mentioned too, um, I think something that's really important in not just the spiritual world, it can be called spiritual bypassing or in just, you know, normal terms, toxic positivity. I don't know if you guys have heard of that at all, but basically it's the idea of good vibes only, you know, only the positive, that type of thing. And so all emotions are valid, you know, and we don't necessarily have to label them as bad or good, but the important thing is to let them come out and to let them be expressed. Because again, if we're not, if we're pushing it down or saying certain things are bad, then we're also not making room for all emotions, which again, they're all valid. And, you know, having this self-compassion, which is something else that can be grown through the process of meditation is just that self-love, self-compassion, being graceful and, you know, easy, gentle with yourself it's okay to have those experiences. I mean, nothing in life is just sunshine. You know, we get rain, we get storms and that's, that's part of the human experience. Yeah. And, and last powerful thing with meditation is once you start realizing these thoughts and you become so self-aware, you've realized how much of a movie you've been creating yourself, the thoughts that you kind of implement, maybe you're at the gym and you create little narrations for people wherever you're walking. Like uh, I read this book and there's something called the roommate in a way. And that's almost like mm-hmm. the ego in a way. And you always have these chatter thoughts going in your mind and it's just silencing them and the conversations, the melodrama that's happening in your mind. And that's like the goal of meditation is rising above that, where you rise above ego and ambition, become selfless in a way. And then you can tap into that form of enlightenment is what they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And I, I like that separation too, of saying like the roommate, you know, cause then it, again, it separates us from that ego voice. And it's really interesting. There's a type of meditation called Vipassana and there, there are retreats that are 10 days long and you're complete, completely silent. I still would like to do one of these. I haven't done it yet. So 10 days, complete silence. And you're with a roommate, you don't talk at all, like the entire 10 days. And so I've had a lot of friends do these retreats. And it's really interesting. Again, like you said, these stories or narratives that the mind is just creating, you know, I had a good friend go on one and he said, him and his roommate, you know, they couldn't talk. And at the end, the last day, finally, they're able to talk to each other. And they were both laughing because they had made up these stories that each other, the, each roommate was like, oh, he probably hates me. And the other one was like, he probably hates me, but it wasn't based on anything. It was just their minds creating these stories. And like, we've never even met, you know? <laughs> so it's just interesting yeah. to see where, where the mind can go. Yeah. And you mentioned Vipassana uh, meditation. Is there like different kinds of meditations for, for different things? Like I'd say you're trying to, you know, calm the chatter in your mind. Should you meditate one way? Or if you're trying to be more productive, should you meditate another way? Is there different kinds of types of meditation? Yeah, there are different types. And I would say that, you know, the best type is the one you do. (laughs) So doing something is better than nothing, right? So I think even just taking a couple minutes a day to do slow, deep breaths, um, 
and and again, you know, we've kind of talked about like the mental piece of meditation, but you know, as nurses, there's also this huge physical component. So taking time to do slow, deep breathing or to just have that time for reflection, for stillness, it helps move your body out of fight or flight, out of stress response. It can, you know, decrease our cortisol, decrease blood pressure, decrease our heart rate, can help us sleep better. I've done in the hospital too, just slow, deep breaths with my patient and that helps their pain score go down too. So it has, you know, physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological benefits all of it in, in meditation. Yeah, for people that don't believe in the effects of meditation, there's just like one simple thing you could do, especially people that don't believe in like the power of, of the breath is next time you you're in like a stress situation or your heart rates up or you're nervous, just take like three minutes aside three or five minutes or even less and just do a few deep breaths and your heart rate naturally goes down. So that's you're already given your body mm-hmm. some physiological change just by altering the way you're breathing and just uh the way you're, you're, you're still in that point in time. Exactly. That's literally how, how powerful it is. It's not like you need to go to the gym and lift like some mental weight with your mind or something. It's literally, it's, it's a, it's a pass, it's passive effort. And it just all it takes mm-hmm. our bodies have, you know, they have our autonomous nervous system. There's two variations of our nervous system. And in simple terms, one's our passive, passive system and one's our active, right? Our fire, fire flight, one's passive, one's active. And that's, and that's just how simple it, it becomes. And people like to complicate things. But all you really need to do is just calm your breath and it naturally calms your whole body down. Yeah. How do you incorporate yoga Mm -hmm. into your mindfulness practice? Yeah, good question. I love yoga as well. It's something that kind of the same time I really got into meditation, I, I started getting pretty solid in my yoga practice. Like I said, I used to be a really big runner and I'd always think, oh, yoga, that's so slow. It does is this even a good workout? You know, and then I started really getting into it mainly because with running, I was having a lot of tightness in my hips. And so I'm like, all right, let's give this yoga a shot. And then I started really seeing the mental benefits of it. So for me, I'm always movement is an important part of my self care. And usually it's yoga, it's often stretching. Um, But again, it, it incorporates the mind, the body and the spiritual aspect. So I think it's something so powerful that can incorporate everything. And you know, like Peter said about the breath, just getting you out of your head and into your body as well. It's so helpful because a lot of times when we're stuck in certain thought patterns, we need like a pattern interrupt, which is sometimes by taking the breaths, by moving the body, just getting out of our head and changing, you know, our posture, simple things too, even just like standing up in like a power pose, you know, with the arms out like this, already your chest is open, your arms are up. And so that makes you breathe in a different way too. It also lets you lead with your heart instead of kind of close off. So you already feel more confident. So just certain little postural things in yoga can help shift a lot. Yeah. I got into yoga for a similar reason. Like my, my hips were tight and my back was tight from, from lifting weights. And I was kind of hesitant to try yoga because, you know, I'm a guy and you don't really have too much guys in yoga. So it's like so, social thing, right? Yeah, it's a social thing. Like, oh, like, you know, you, what are you doing yoga for? Like, that's one thing. But also, men, uh, we like to work out because that's like a big aggression factor for us. And why men are hesitant to do yoga is because there's no aggression in it. Like, when you're lifting weights, lifting heavy weights, you got you to gotta be aggressive. You got to be a little bit angry. Even a sport or combat sport. Exactly. Yeah, even fighting, mm-hmm. like those kind of more physical sports is because we, as, as men, tend to lean towards more physical active things and 
yoga is super active, super physical. It's just missing that that aggressive component that a lot of men like. That's why they take pre-workout. Like if, imagine taking pre-workout before a yoga session, you'd be going crazy. You wouldn't be able to sit still <laughs> or do those kind of poses. Yeah. But yoga is it allows us to have a different form of athleticism. It's like it's like I said in the beginning where it's like the aggression and, and, and like the, the passive stuff. Yoga is like your your passive working out, which is still very athletic. It still takes a lot because I'm not very flexible. But when I do yoga for, you know, two weeks straight, three weeks straight, my flexibility changes and my mindset changes completely without that aggression or component of it. And that's why it, females are, are more leading towards, you know, yoga, things like that compared to, to men, where it's almost stimulating the same thing. You go to the gym, not only for the physical aspects of it, but also for for the mental build it gives you because a lot of people go to the gym, not only for physical features, but also to strengthen their mind mentally, you know, um, surpass barriers, break down barriers, because if you could lift a weight that you thought you couldn't wait, or if you lift a weight that you thought you couldn't lift, that's breaks down so much mental barriers. And that's same thing with, with yoga, but in a, a different sense. And a lot of people view it that way. Mm-hmm. Is that, do you use yoga in, in that kind of a way as well? Like in the aspect in, of like in the aspect more... of in the aspect of like bettering your your mental health and overcoming barriers, like you said in the beginning, like ideas. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. I think having that. Thank you for sharing your experience. And I I think you know yes because during yoga a lot of times certain poses with balance or you know just increasing flexibility, as you said, when you're really dedicated and you have a consistent practice, you're able to really see how you've shifted, how you've grown. And a lot of this mental work and physical work, you know, it takes consistency, it takes dedication. And I think sometimes we think that the motivation is going to come first, but it's actually the commitment that shows up first. And then we start to see the results, you know? So it's like, I like to compare it to planting a seed. You plant a seed and you you think it's not doing anything. You just see the soil, you don't see anything, but it, you know, it's growing roots down below. And then eventually you see it start sprouting. And I think that's kind of similar with yoga or meditation, you have to show up and keep showing up consistently. And then, you know, after maybe a month or two, you start seeing results, whether it's better concentration, stronger mindset, physically, you know, you start seeing your muscle develop, and then you become more motivated. So yeah, yoga has been really powerful for me um, in many ways. And I think the spiritual piece too, because in a lot of ways, you know, our bodies well, you guys know our bodies store emotion, they store, they store old energy, things and experiences we've gone through. So humans don't necessarily have certain ways to automatically release this stuff from our body. Like if you look at animals in nature, say an animal is being chased, say a gazelle is being chased by a cheetah and it gets away. When it goes back to its pack, it goes back and they actually do these rituals or they shake, they move their body where they physically remove that experience that was traumatic, that fight or flight experience from their body, and then they move on. But humans don't really have that type of response, you know, so a lot of stuff gets stuck. So that's why yoga, moving in certain movements, we store a lot in our hips, a lot in our jaw. And so being able to do certain poses, it allows that to have an emotional release as well. That's, wow, that's very beautiful. I didn't know about that with animals. That's a really cool story. And it's wild how they don't teach mm-hmm. us in school that, hey, you have stored energy. You are an energy being. You you aren't only this three-dimensional being. Just like in the hospitals, I feel like that's the only part that we take care of. It's this three-dimensional being. Let's fix you up here, here, here. Do this. And it's like a Band-Aid. And we're missing the mm-hmm. whole point. Yeah. So speaking of energy and everything, mm-hmm. 
I'm curious about your experience with Reiki. I've only heard things, great things about it. And Mm -hmm. from my understanding, we have these, you know, seven energy centers and sometimes one of them can be blocked where it's not properly channeling energy up and down, I believe. And what happens is Mm -hmm. once that specific chakra is blocked, it could cause um, symptoms, feelings, or actually symptoms on the body based on where the energy is blocked. So what yeah, is Reiki? exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for asking. And I, I wanted to comment too on what you said before that, because I agree with what you're saying, you know, especially in hospitals, we often look at people as just kind of one component, or we look at, oh, you have headaches, let's give you these meds. And of course, I believe in Western medicine. And I think there's a time and a place for everything. But I think we also have to look at the person as an entire being, you know, their life experiences, their mental health, their physical health, you know, culturally and spiritually, and really take in a holistic point of view, which for me is why I love, you know, all my intersections of my psychology, the nursing, the spiritual, and just how they all work together. So in terms of Reiki and energy, yes, I love this question. And I think a simple example in terms of energy for those people who might be like, what energy, what are you talking about? I think, you know, we all have this intuition and we all are energetic beings. So it might be an example, you know, that you can think of where you, you didn't quite know why you did something, but you just felt it. Or maybe you walk into a patient's room and you're like, hmm, I feel like the family members just had an argument or something went on, even though nobody's saying it, right? You can feel that energy or maybe you're walking somewhere and you just have this feeling like, I think I need to cross the street right now. I don't really know why, but I think I just need to cross the street. And so those are all examples of energy, our intuition, picking up on these subtleties that are in the environment that allow us to make decisions. So exactly like you said, we have um, actually have a picture here that I use for Reiki. I drew this just to show you guys, but so we do have multiple energy centers in our body and the seven main chakras are the ones we often focus on. So I don't know if you guys can really see that, but those are the colors. Yep. Those are the colors that are associated with those chakras. So really starting from like the base of the spine up into above the head is the crown chakra. And just as you said, Matt, when we're blocked in certain ways, it can prevent or it can present um, physically. And so the seven main chakras are the main ones we work with and each one represents something different. So as an example, the root chakra, which is the bottom one at the base is really related to fear and safety. So anything that comes up around that, and we can use mantras like, I feel safe, I'm safe in my body, I'm grounded. And so those are some things. Also, it's related with the color red and different things. You can go really deep into the chakras, but in terms of the energy healing, uh, Reiki is an energy healing that has origins in Japan. And again, it's basically using the idea that we're all energetic beings, and the Reiki practitioner who does grow through, go through lots of training in order to be a practitioner, um, then is like channeling source energy by either lightly placing their hands above the person, or you can do light touch depending on the practitioner or the scenario or kind of, you know, what's decided is best for that case. And it just helps start flowing the energy through. So a lot of Eastern medicine, I don't know if you guys are familiar with acupuncture, but they also have chi, which is basically the energy that runs through you. And so they'll put in 
needles and certain points in order to get that flow going and to make sure your energy is channeling and there's not any blockages. So Reiki is similar in that sense that it gets your energy flow going. And, you know, the practitioners can also, I've also been trained in um, seeing where the block blockages are. So I'll use a pendulum, which is basically a crystal and you kind of can hold it. And I'm able to tell exactly where the patient or the client has certain blocks. And then we can pay more attention to those areas as well, or use certain mantras to help flow the energy as well. That's how do, so cool. Yeah, it's really interesting. How do people say that they feel during during this, like during a session? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's really different per person. Um, some people can feel, you know, like they might feel some heat, they might feel some coolness, they might feel tingling, they might just feel certain areas of their body, like almost receiving a lot of energy or blood flow. And so it's really interesting. Each experience is really different. And I think it's really a deep um, healing session when you have a really good rapport with your practitioner, when you also are really open to receive the energetic healing. And when you, you don't always have to know where you need a healing, but if you also have an issue, maybe you feel a block, you know, or maybe there's something in your life, a relationship, a situation that's causing you just some mental disease um, that it can also help if you go in with that intention to really clear that. So it's, it's different each time. Yeah. So do you, when somebody comes in like a client or, or a patient, do you ask them like a series of questions, mm -hmm. try to figure out what's going in their life or what, where is the unbalance happening? Yeah, I usually like to, when I do one-on-one -on -one sessions with clients or group sessions, I usually like to touch base with each person or the client and just kind of get a feel for where they're at, what's going on in their life. A little bit more, you know, holistically as well, just mentally, spiritually, physically, what they're experiencing, and then see if they have any intentions for themselves. And then we kind of go, go from that and make a, a customized session for them. That is really cool. I'm actually excited even to get one or look into one. And I've, it's funny because my grandma is a masseuse. And even mm. though she's so Roman Catholic, she actually has a pendulum herself that she does different little rituals on, for example, I already shared the story, but it's like my grandpa had a headache and we didn't know which prescription pill was causing the headache. So she took the pendulum and that specific med that was causing that disrupt, it was spinning a uh, different way or in a straight line. Mm -hmm. I, I find, yes, that's amazing. I, know. I love that she did that. And, and it's funny because she's so like uh, religious where you technically aren't supposed to do those things. But for her, it's the excuse like, oh, I could do that. Mm. That's, and that's why I got so much into these things and energy because I've always been taught at an early age that these things do exist. Yeah, it's cool because you've been raised predominantly Roman Catholic and you also got that aspect of that kind of a realm at an early age. Right. So it already opened up like your mind, and your consciousness to, to things existing like that. And having an open mind about it. Exactly. Because especially for mm -hmm. us Polish people is we're raised predominantly Catholic and Catholicism is the one religion and that's all you teach they teach you in school and it's everything life is based on religion and it's cool that your grandma did that because that made you open-minded as a younger kid yeah because it showed hey my grandma does catholicism but then she also does does this energy stuff that i'm not really familiar with nobody really talks about it too much and she does it and, and it works yeah yeah that's why there, there has to be another aspect of, of life because a lot of people say that these eastern medicines or these 
alternate therapies don't work, but yet there's so much undiscovered space, like in our mind and in this world, like the, like the idea of energy is really hard to grasp, but we know that something exists, right? There's, it's possible. Like even look at electricity, electricity or, or Wi-Fi. it's, it's invisible, right? But it, it exists. Yeah. Same with energy. It's invisible, but it exists. It exists in a different form that we're not able to fully view and comprehend, but it's there. Yeah, it, It's there for, for people that want to use it. And there's not, not really like a, like a negative or, or you could say a specific positive for it, but it, it's just there in, in your disposal. And whoever wants to harness it, they can. Yeah, I think the author of Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling, had a quote that like, like energy is not good or bad. It's just who seeks power and who sees it and other people just yeah. don't like fire like fire for example it could burn your house down but mm-hmm. without fire you can't you can't warm your house either yeah so that, that, that that's a duality of things mm-hmm. I, I, I love what you said matt about your your grandma and how you know you grew up with a really religious background yet at the same time this was open and I actually have a similar story i grew up also catholic i went to catholic high school And um, on my mom's side of the family, we're Guatemalan. And so, you know, a lot of Latin cultures are very, very Catholic. And my grandma on that side, she introduced me to acupuncture when I was, I think I first went when I was 13. And she loved going to acupuncture. She was always trying different kinds of diets. And I remember going to her house when I was a kid. And I was like, what are you doing? You're juicing and, you know, just learning all these different things. And one day I had uh, a cold and she's like, oh, I think we should go to acupuncture. And I was like, okay, as long as they don't put needles in, in my face, I'll go, I'll try yeah. it. And first thing they're like, right. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> so I think, you know, having that exposure, even though maybe at the time I wasn't quite ready to understand it or just being exposed to those different things. Like you said, Peter, you know, like having it in, in my aura, in my energy field and knowing about it allowed me to be more curious about it later. And actually now my younger sister is an acupuncturist. So it's cool how it all kind of went full circle. Yeah. There's one famous person that, that said ignorance is a bliss. Yeah. And I feel like that, that can be attributed to almost everything in, in, in the world, right? If you, if you critique something and never really, really try it and you're ignorant of it, you're never really going to see the benefit of it or, or what it actually it's for or, or what it causes or what it stems from. And a lot of people have this, this mindset where modern medicine, it's, it's the future, it's the best, this is what we need because we progress with it as a society. But that's just being ignorant to all the other things and all the other ways that people have gotten better over time without technology, without yeah. modern medicine, right? Because people were not just dying, dropping left and right, not being treated for their illnesses or for their diseases, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 1000 years ago, they had their own medicines and their own technologies. Yeah. And their talk technologies were were futuristic for for their point in time, but not necessarily for us, but doesn't mean it's not as effective. Yeah, and you make a very good point, because we, we talked about this before. So there's an assumption that everything in the universe is measurable. Mm-hmm. Therefore, everything is knowable and controllable in science. But what if we can't control everything in the universe? What if we can't figure that. What if we can't really map out consciousness if we really think it exists? Mm-hmm. What if it's past the realm that is measurement? Yeah. What if we so, can? What if we can? There's just not enough heads trying to trying to think of ideas on, on how to on how to create it. Whatever we're looking in like the the wrong places. What if all this 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 vision, this search for space, for technology, for the best weapons, the best defense programs, the the best cell phones, the best electronics, the best cybersecurity? Maybe that's that's going too far away from the source and we're actually not harnessing the actual 
natural energy that there is around us. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You make a very good point because when we're, we're born into this world and we're given the name, the religion in a way and everything, everything's already given to us. And what if there's more to it? What if like, for example, the whole duality of good versus evil, right? What if that's just a duality that was socially conditioned to us? Mm -hmm. And really, just like you mentioned, Tasha, there just is, there isn't that good or bad energy. There's just that energy and you use it however you want to, because you have the free will. Yeah. And over time I could see that's going to rant here about <laughs> dualism and stuff, but like, yeah, if you it's think good. about it, the concept of, of dualism is a lot easier to grasp and to imagine than the concept of, of just being, of just, of just is. It's a lot harder to grasp than, than having something attributed to being good or evil, right? Because if you attribute everything that had to, be, to dualism that's good or evil, you have some kind of an outcome. There's always some kind of an outcome. If the bad thing is winning, it's going to be a bad outcome. It's going to negatively impact you. If the good thing is winning, it's going to be a positive impact. It's going to affect you positively. But if it's just there, it's still the unknown. And we fear the unknown. It's uncomfortable. Because if there's no good, there's no bad, there just is, then you, you don't, there's no foreshadowing of what it might turn into. And that's that, that fear that we're always chasing. We used to chase, chase lions, chase, run away from saber tooth tigers. They used to chase us, animals used to chase us. And now it's like, that's all gone. So what else is chasing us? It's time in our mind. Now we're trying to solve the problems that are in our mind and in, and in time and in space. That's kind of where side is pushing towards because we don't have that fear of, of getting attacked, right? So that's yeah. why we like that dualism theory is because we like to have an outcome and a predictable outcome that we could for sure say. doesn't really stem too much into meditation, yoga, but, <laughs> but still, I, you brought no, it, no, it does. I think it's, it's, all, it's all related. And I think mm. a lot of it too is about perception, you know, yeah. because I think I could tell a story the same story to an audience of 10 people and each person would react in a different way based on kind of, as Matt said, you know, you're given your background. We're, we're born in this world. You know, I grew up in Southern California. I came from, you know, mixed like Latino on one side, Irish on the other side, you know, very different cultures. And so it's like, I'm going to have my own perception with those things, with being a woman, with growing up in California. And so depending on who your audience is, they're all going to interpret that same story in a different way. You might think it's bad. He might think it's good. She might think it's horrible, you know? And so it's interesting just to see how all of those things do shape our perception as well. I know we talked about travel a little bit. And for me, that's something that I really love because it allows me to see that there are other ways of living. There are other ways of doing things. And sometimes when you get into this box, you know, or maybe you think things can only happen a certain way, it just, for me, it helps expand my mind and just see that there, you know, humans living in other ways that not to say they're better or worse than the way I'm living, but they're different. And we're, we're all, you know, we're all here living in our own way. And uh, yeah, I think I think it's complex. There's a, there's a lot to it. Yeah, <laughs> so I do think it is related. Experience. Yeah, that's the beauty of it because we're all living life, but my life is different than everyone else's life. And no matter how hard mm -hmm. I try to understand Matt's life, I still fully cannot grasp his life. Yeah. And so he can't grasp for me. We're just right. in an understanding that we're all on this earth and our main goal is to make this earth better for ourselves, but you know, for the future generation that are going to come after us. Now tell that to the whole mm -hmm. world. So there's Damn, right now there yes. is so much damn disconnect and there's so mm -hmm. much polarization because I don't get why there is. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the beauty of meditation mm -hmm. is especially when you guys are talking to to the emotions. How many times have you been frustrated or, or angry and you really want to say something and, and you didn't and then you meditate, took a few deep few deep breaths and you're like, 
that was a good choice. I'm glad I didn't say anything because that was completely unnecessary. Yeah. And that allows Ooh, you to yes. hone in and ground in on one emotion and explore why you're feeling that emotions, that emotion, what you can do to change that emotion. And how could you prevent from that emotion from coming up if it's emotion that you don't like? And if it's emotion that you like mm-hmm. is you could trace it back to what's causing this emotion. How am I reacting toward this emotion? And how do I get more of this emotion? That's what meditation really does at a certain level. If you kind of have that emotional disconnect, because it allows you to explore each emotion single-handedly, like anger, sadness, frustration, because they all come in at once, but they all have different reasons. You're going to treat anger differently than you treat sadness, than you treat frustration. Well, first you have to realize why those emotions and by themselves, those emotions come at you. And meditation is the only, I feel like the only time where you could actually have the mental capacity and the strength to, to figure out what's going on. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. It helps you really separate. And I think, you know, having these emotions and again, not necessarily needing to label them as bad or good, uh, you know, but when they come up using them as information and meditation allows you to have more space in between kind of like that stimulus and your reaction. And sometimes it's even just one deep breath that can stop you from doing something or saying something, you know, like you mentioned that you're like, Oh, I wish I didn't do that. But sometimes taking one deep breath is enough to put you on a whole nother trajectory. And again, the brain, you know, we get really into our habits and we, it's like a lot of this stuff is just automatic, you know, someone does something and we, it's like, we just automatically respond, but meditation allows you again, to create more space in between the stimulus and your response. So sometimes it might just be a deep breath. And then after that, you can lengthen that time even more. And then, as you said, have the awareness to decide if that's something you want to change, or if that's something, you know, what do you want to do with that? I really like the fact you you brought up, and I'm a firm believer in in this as well, that the emotions that you feel in your head and your body aren't your actual emotion. They're just there, like you say. And I think people have to really realize that they're they're just there. They're just neurochemical the way your your brains and your neurons and your chemicals are balanced is the reason why you're feeling that that emotion during that point in time. And the conscious effort that you instill is the action that you take based on those emotions. So you, you truly being yourself is the one reacting and acting on those emotions, not those emotions themselves. That's why I maybe you don't believe in this or, or Matt doesn't either, but that's why I believe that your actions are always going to be bigger than, than your words. Because with action, you're, you're actually taking your physical and mental ability and capacity to actually do something different or, or change, right? It's just saying that where you just say things out, out of emotions, whether you have that reciprocal where you do things out of emotion as well. But like when everyone brings up that question, do words mean more or does action means more? I feel like actions always mean more because a lot of times words are easier to come by and for you to actually do something about it takes a lot more, more effort. And also, like we said multiple times before is you aren't your emotions. You aren't, every voice in your head you're just the voice that you act on yeah and and it's also because your heart you could let me know if this is the right idea here so your heart is almost like a giant energy center correct and let's just say you have that thought correct you said that it's not your thought well if you sit on that thought too long it starts coming into reality because your heart is an energy center so you keep saying let me give a good example i am not good enough eventually I am not good enough is going to turn into energy and your heart is going to keep attracting, right? That energy isn't good or bad. You're just attracting it to, yeah. to, into yourself. And then it's going to start becoming reality till you just let go of it. And then that's when eventually you sit with that emotion, that heart chakra, the energy center just lets that go. And then it just goes back into whatever it just is. True. Like you will never be good enough. 
if you don't start thinking you're good enough, right? Yeah, that kind of concept. Words and actions mm-hmm. go both hand in hand, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of it too, that's important, like another component, because everything is so interrelated is really then taking in like the subconscious mind, because sometimes, even though, you know, our actions aren't us, and we can be separate from those, we do have to look at why are we getting triggered? And what's like the deeper layer behind it. So I think that's also why the meditation piece or the reflection, the stillness piece is important, because if we're reacting the same way, you know, say, for me, I used to get triggered a lot when, um, my friends were late or my family members were late. It it depended. It was mainly people who I was really close with, you know, like my sister, my parents, my partner. Um, And, and then I had to say like, okay, why is this triggering me? And then I would really like pick it apart and I'm like, oh, it's showing that they don't respect me. And then I had to really, you know, question that too. Is that really true that they don't respect me? And I'd say, no, they're just late, you know? And so maybe someone else wouldn't get triggered by that. And, you know, really taking it back even further and further, was there a time, you know, someone was late and it was really traumatic to me or, you know, just really picking it back even more to see where it's coming from. And then from that point, deciding to start reshaping my thoughts around that, you know, like, okay, in this time I can, of course you can have boundaries too, but, you know, maybe reframing what that means. I'm glad they're safe. They're, they're going to make it when they make it. I, now I have 10 minutes extra to get a coffee and wait for them, you know, reframing that trigger into something different. Yeah. I like that you brought up there where you, when you explore yourself, you peel back these certain thoughts and emotions, and you try to get to the, the root cause of why something makes you feel a certain way. And then you come to the realization that, that, Hey, this is, not at all what I thought it was about. Like you said, like your friends showing you disrespect and not being respectful by showing up, up late. It's not there. They're doing it. They're, they're just late. But it says that story that you mm-hmm. told yourself on, on why they're late. And that's the way it exactly. made you feel. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how you like self-discover yourself in that way. And, and that's in that sense where it's just, you're making stuff, stuff up and it's changing the way you feel. Yeah. And it has mm-hmm. n- like no logic and there's no root for it. It's just like your thoughts. And your idea of drama. yeah of what you think is happening, but it's actually not happening at all. It's like that little little earth that you have in your head of creativity. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. And like the example that Matt used of you know someone who says they're not good enough. It's like imagine wearing glasses that that's your lens. Okay, I'm not good enough. That's all I'm gonna see. So at the same time, you're also looking for those things to confirm because the brain is also trying to give you, you know, oh, here's an example of you're not good enough. Here's not example of you're not good enough. But as you start to change your own stories or limiting beliefs, as you become aware of them, while in the beginning, you might not believe it or feel like you believe it, you just keep, you know, keep practicing the new I am good enough, I do deserve blah, 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 whatever it is you're reprogramming and our brains are neuroplastic. So with time, they start creating that new groove, that new neural pathway to the new change that you're trying to make for yourself. Yeah, yeah you're really hitting a lot of good points, a lot of, and making this very easy to, to listen on and, and understand. Yeah, and then also like while that's happening, while you're able to change that, you also have to be always conscious at that moment because before you know it, you're sucked back into that melodrama, back into that same movie you keep narrating. And then it's like, you snap out of it. Like, oh, damn, I was unconscious for 10 minutes. Where am I back mm-hmm. into the movie? You know, it's such a trip once you start becoming so aware and you're seeing where your mind takes you. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's not an overnight thing, right? It's not overnight. It's No. It, it takes weeks, months, years. Like people understand it. People, don't, people have to understand that this is, this consistency to do this, you're trying to change your mind for the rest of your life. Yeah. So imagine how long that should take you. It's not going to take one week session. It's not going to take, take a month. It's going to take 
months and years of consistency and, and constant action because you're trying to change your whole life. It's not like where you're trying to get bigger calves at the gym or, you know, if you're really holding on your calves for three months, they're going to be juicy. You know, it's not how, it's not how it works. <laughs> trying to change your mind and your, and your brain like a muscle, but for forever, for longevity. You said our brains are very neuroplastic. That's basically, mm-hmm. neuroplasticity is, is your, the ability of your brain to, to change its, its chemical reactions and your chemical connections based on their axons and dendrites and all that, that neurological jargon. But you're doing this for the rest of your life. You want to have this change for the rest of your life. It's going to take consistency almost every day. I'm sure once, I'm not sure how often you, you meditate. I'm pretty sure you said it every day, but there was a point in my life where I used to meditate literally every day. And now I could get away with probably like two or three times a week. And that's all I really need. And that's, I feel like how most people take it in over time. It's almost like, like working out where once you get that physique, all you need to do is, do is maintain. And it's very similar with meditation. Once you hone in on those skills and you're able to change majority of things you want to change, rest of you're kind of coasting with meditation. And then maybe one week you're super upset where you're going to have to meditate maybe twice as much or three times as much as you, you, you would do by, by standard. Is that kind of how it works for you? Or is that kind of an idea that's being tackled? Yeah, yeah. I like what you said about, you know, like say working out your calves or whatever. And that's like a physical thing that you can see. You're like, yes, they're getting bigger. I'm stronger physically. I see my muscle. And that's kind of how meditation is. It's like the mental workout, right? And I mean, just like you see an Olympic athlete, maybe in their prime physical shape, if they stop, their muscle is going to go away, right? And it can go all the way away. So I think it's, it is that maintenance piece. But for me, I'm, I meditate every day and maybe I don't do it as long. You know, I don't necessarily need to do one hour every day, but I do a minimum of five, like if it's the, the most minimum five minutes a day, every day, because for me, I believe that it is in that consistency. For me, the five minutes is better than no minutes versus, you know, doing three long ones in a week period. So for me, it's more about the short consistencies because it's the day to day rather than a couple times a week where you're maybe doing long ones or it's kind of a combination, you know, and then there might be times where I'm doing three meditations a day or maybe one long one, just kind of depending on what's going on in my life. The beauty of it is meditation. You could do it whenever, wherever you could gear towards you. It's like, it's like Play-Doh. You could yep. build it to whatever you want it to be. So yeah. uh, we just debunked the myth that you can teach an old dog new tricks because of neuroplasticity yes. and you can change whatever habit you want in your life. And I'm actually curious on, I, I hope there's some people doing studies about meditation and like Alzheimer's and dementia, because we talk about when we're doing meditation, we're like, we're literally working on our brain. I wonder mm-hmm. how consistent and continuous meditation possibly deters the effects of Alzheimer's, dementia, or well, we'll preserve like the function we'll of preserve every brain function. I'm sure I'm, I mean, if I'm no genius, but I'm pretty sure it's a pretty decent hypothesis to say, Hey, if I'm working on my brain and trying to balance out my mind so I could think the way I want to think that for sure is going to have positive effects on, on your brain in the long term in prevention of dementia and Alzheimer's. Yeah. I think like logically thinking about it, I think it would, it would make sense. Right. I think we're all in agreement here. Yeah, I I agree. Because also, again, you're also going deeper into your spiritual self, your emotional self. And I think, you know, like everything else, the mind and body are a loop in constant feedback. So one is always influencing the other. And so I think the more we're able to show up in that way, you know, of doing the mental workout, the physical workout, and also taking in that emotional piece, because we all in some way, have experienced trauma throughout our life, it doesn't necessarily have to be this huge catastrophic thing. But even, you know, 
I wouldn't even say this is a smaller thing, but maybe if you got made fun of in school, you know, versus having a parent who passed away when you were young, like all of these things are traumas and they're all stored within us. So as we process that as well during meditation, the stuff that comes up, it allows us to just be free of things that might be building up inside of us. So I think, yes, everything is related and being able to preserve that that brain, you know, in the best way we can. And, and knowing that it's neuroplastic, I think it's also really nice to show how resilient humans are. No matter what traumas we go through, we can still build back in some way. Yeah. yeah. And speaking of Alzheimer's dementia, I know I looked at some research back in the day. It said that that travel actually decreases your, your chances of, of dementia and Alzheimer's. But that's very, very subjective. And I know you did a lot of traveling. So what did you what are some things that, that you've learned from, from all the countries that you travel with? Did you travel for the sake of meditation or for, for pleasure? What was your, your, your goal with traveling and what did you take, take away from it? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I love traveling. It's such a huge part of my life. And I think this pandemic year has been the longest that I haven't traveled internationally in quite some time. So it's been interesting. Um, but, and of course I'm privileged to be able to say that, you know, but I, I, and I'm grateful for all the travels I've had, but really initially travel started for me um, well, my mom was born in Guatemala and so she would often take, and she grew up mainly in California. She came when she was young, but she would take my sister and I every couple of years. And so that was embedded in me pretty young, just seeing, you know, a different country and really being able to take that in. And then as I got older, travel really became kind of like a gateway for me to go to other places and volunteer and give back. I really loved helping in other countries. So even when I was in nursing school, I lived in Haiti for a month working at a clinic there after they had had their big earthquake. And so as a nursing student, they let me, you know, do vitals and help the nurses and different things like that. And so being able to really pair nursing with travel was so huge for me. And then as I was really on my spiritual path, I think my biggest trip, one of my most significant trips was I went to uh, Central America for nine weeks by myself backpacking. And that was in 2017. It was a big year. My grandma had passed away, my, my grandma from Guatemala. So I really wanted to go back and just, you know, really get back to my roots and have this time for myself to just really do my own level of healing and have my own self-care. And so for me, it was really empowering, especially as a woman to be able to travel that long by myself. And meet people from all over the country. A lot of my coworkers, I remember when I was leaving on that trip, they're like, are you crazy? Why are you going by yourself for nine weeks? And I started doubting myself, like, am I crazy? Is this a good idea? What am I doing? And then as soon as I got out there, I was like, ah, yes, this is where I'm supposed to be. And that actually, you know, helped me think in the future, I want to have a wellness center in Central America. I want to run my own retreats. I want to have a place where people can come and do meditation and have their own, you know, levels of healing that they're seeking. And so, yeah, it's, it's just been really amazing for me to see and meet people from all over the world. And I think, again, just really come back to being connected with nature, with the earth and seeing how in a lot of other countries, people live a much simpler life and they're really happy. They also experience a lot of trauma and they're still able to be resilient. And I think, you know, it makes me feel really grateful for the life I do have and to be able to just connect with humans, even if we don't speak the same language, I think just really having that human connection, it's so powerful. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. Tasha, thank you for this wonderful interview and all the share stories that you shared. Where can people find you? 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was nice to be back again. Uh, yeah, the best way is on Instagram. I'm pretty active on there at the Nurtured Nurse. And on my bio, I have the link for my website, which is also the nurturednurse.co, so .co. Uh, but Instagram is is pretty good. I'm pretty active on there. You're awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tasha. Yeah, thank you. Day. We'll keep in touch. Yes, uh, thank you so much. 